This is Lock and Coke, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. This week, we're going to talk about last week, starting with the news. On Malwarebytes Labs, we uncovered the latest activity from the threat actors behind Malsmoke, a mashup of the words malvertising and smoke loader. Let me explain. In August, we detected an uptick in malvertising campaigns, in which threat actors managed to place malicious advertising onto free porn sites. Those malicious ads relied on an exploit kit that preyed on a vulnerability in Internet Explorer. One of those malvertising campaigns delivered Smoke Loader, which is a tool that actually serves as a downloader for other separate malware. Okay, fast-forwarding to last week, we found that those same Smoke Loader operators have ditched their exploit kit tactics, which means no more focus on Internet Explorer. Instead, the threat actors are relying on some good old-fashioned social engineering around porn. Users who engage with their malicious ads are sent to a bogus website offering free porn videos. When users click to press play, they're shown a few seconds of pixelated video, and then the video stops. A dialog box pops up and tells users that the only way to continue the video is to download a Java update. Of course, the provided Java update is not a Java update at all, but a sneaky attempt to install the Zloader downloader onto a victim's machine, which, much like Smoke Loader, can download other separate malware. This is a complex attack chain. And yet, and this is true, an earlier version of that bogus porn website, which now carries the URL pornislife.online, which is objectively funny. But anyways, the previous version of that site misspelled the word porn. They wrote Rorn. <sighs> we also warned readers about a new Chromium-based web browser called Web Navigator Browser. The browser, which promises to simplify your browsing experience, was actually published by a family of search hijackers that we've been reporting on since the summer. The earlier schemes that we uncovered involved changing a Chrome browser policy to remote administration and developing a Chrome browser extension that kept some secrets about its permissions. The new web browser's end goal is the same as most search hijacker efforts steer users to search results and hope that they'll click on them, which will eventually put some ad revenue into the search hijacker's own pockets. When comparing the simplicity of these efforts to the complexity of the Malsmoke campaign, it's night and day, which just goes to show that shady cyberwork welcomes applicants from all skill levels. We reported on President Donald Trump's decision to fire Chris Krebs, the director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, or CISA. The president fired Krebs just days after CISA evaluated the recent presidential election as, quote, the most secure in American history, end quote. That security evaluation found good company a group of 59 election security and computer science experts jointly wrote that many of the claims of election rigging, quote, either have been unsubstantiated or are technically incoherent, end quote. Separately, a group of 16 prosecutors tasked specifically with catching election tampering 
told U.S. Attorney General William Barr that they found no substantial evidence of that in this election. For months now, Lock and Code has repeatedly dodged the world's attempts to corner us into joking about U.S. politics, and foolishly, I thought I'd finally get a reprieve following the election. I see now that I was very wrong. Finally, we talked about Black Friday. The biggest shopping day of the year is going to be a little different this week, as coronavirus precautions have led many stores to close their physical locations while instead offering plenty of online deals. But with so much online shopping sure to happen, cybercriminals are sure to follow. Here are a few tips to stay safe. 1. Be suspicious of emails claiming to come from stores, especially if they ask for login details or if they include links that differ from the store's recognizable URL. Two, use a credit card if possible, as it can be harder to retrieve stolen funds from a debit account. Three, update your software, as there will be tons of malicious sites around the web in the lead up to Black Friday. Four, beware of shortened links on social media. Five, don't fall for the common retweet or share to win a prize tricks, which sometimes result in scams sent through direct messages. And six, and this is my personal tip, try to have a good holiday. Like, earnestly, no joking, try to rest. 2020 has been rough. Also, Malwarebytes has a Black Friday sale happening right now, so get on that. We're talking 50% off Malwarebytes Premium and 40% off our Malwarebytes Premium and Privacy Bundle, which includes our VPN. Oh, you thought this podcast wouldn't have ads? You thought we weren't sponsored by some big name? We are. We're sponsored by Malwarebytes. In cybersecurity news across the world, Bleeping Computer told readers that Facebook fixed a major security flaw in its Facebook Messenger for Android app that could have allowed callers to listen to another user's audio before that user actually picked up the call. Hold up, you can call people on Facebook Messenger? ZDNet reported that a new Chinese state-sponsored Advanced Persistent Threat Group has compromised more than 200 systems across Southeast Asia with malware. The attacks have primarily targeted governments, with victims in Malaysia, Taiwan, the Philippines, and Vietnam. The hacking group is named Funny Dream. Not funny, more like a bad dream. TechCrunch followed up on the video game maker Capcom's earlier claim that customer data was not accessed during a ransomware attack this month. The update? Customer data and internal files were stolen during the attack. No word yet on whether the hackers are secretly enjoying the latest sequels to the hit video games Street Fighter and Resident Evil. Finally, Bitdefender's news blog, Hot for Security, reported that the operators of the ransomware DarkSide plan to offer a distributed storage platform for affiliates, likely making it harder for authorities to take down sites that are controlled by the group and making it easier for stolen files to be purchased by cyber thieves. I'm sorry, did these cyber criminals go to business school? What is the root of this newfound entrepreneurialism? Our main story today concerns online ad tracking and charity organizations. Those aren't two concepts that you often hear about together, but make no mistake, there is an overlap. Charity organizations don't really need an introduction, but sure, they are the groups that take on various social causes around the world. 
they're the suicide prevention advocates at the Samaritans in England. They are the Red Cross. They are cancer researchers, child educators, mental health workers, and so much more. Online ad tracking, on the other hand, is a topic both opaque and, for some, upsetting. Online ad tracking is simply the latest achievement in delivering advertisements to certain audiences that companies think have the greatest potential to make a purchase. The concept isn't really new. Luxury brands used to place their advertisements specifically in newspapers that delivered to high-income zip codes. Medications for age-related illnesses broadcast commercials during daytime television when retirees are more likely to watch. But in recent years, this basic matchmaking game has become supercharged. Now, with the help of various online tools, companies can target their advertisements to deeply intimate profiles of likely customers. These profiles frequently include a customer's age, gender, religion, sexuality, and even their browsing behavior that happens away from a company's own website. So, how do these two things fit together? That's what we're about to find out. To help us better understand the intersection of online ad tracking and charity organizations, we're speaking today with Chris Boyd, lead malware intelligence analyst for Malwarebytes. Chris, welcome back to our show. Thank you. It's good to be back. Let's get right into it. We're going to be talking today about online ad tracking methods used by charity organizations. But before we dig into that topic a little more fully, can you tell us briefly about what online ad tracking even is? You know, what kind of data is tracked in that and why folks at home should even know more about it? I can, yeah. I mean, previously we've we've talked about real world ad tracking. So you know how you you go into a store and via things like Bluetooth, Bluetooth beacons will will track your movements around the store. They'll see what kind of products you're looking at, and then when you leave the store and go home, a lot of that tracking and advertising will follow you back from the real world into the digital, and then you'll start seeing offers on websites for products perhaps that you looked at in the in the shop. Purely web-based tracking is a little bit different, you know. Essentially, you go to a website, you'll have lots of pop-up disclaimers and notifications asking you if you accept these cookie prompts, if you accept the kinds of trackers that they've got on the website, and it's usually a yes-no. That website will operate in, in you know, essentially in, in, in isolation, and then you go to another website, and that operates in isolation. You get asked, yes, no, do you accept these cookies, these trackers? And away from that, the bigger picture, you have these things called ad brokers and specific ad networks and other third-party organizations, and they will try and draw a line between the first website and the second website and then the third and the fourth and the fifth and so on. And these brokers will build up an advertising profile, if you like, of yourself, your browsing habits, and they will track and try and associate everything from your web browser to the, the, the type of web browser it is, if it's mobile, if it's desktop, what kind of browser it is, what kind of website you look at, what kind of plugins you have. And they will, they will try and create a very granular, detailed profile of you. And then they will drop that information usually into multiple categories. So an ad broker may never have run into you directly. You may never have interacted with them but somewhere in their database, they may have essentially what is a massive spreadsheet of all of your stuff, all the websites that you go to, the things that they like. They will try and guess your everything from your age range, 
to your, you know, your gender, to, to the kind of things you're likely to purchase. You may find yourself dropped in a, for example, a, a heavy smoker category with a strong inclination to buy specific brands, or you, you may be dropped into a sporting category, you know, likely to buy certain types of sporting gear or, or you know, even a, a certain type of off-road Jeep that, that you use to transport I don't know, a, a really big canoe. <laughs> the, 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 the sky is the limit, but that is in a nutshell how that works. I think when a lot of people hear about these things, from my experience, they're hearing about these things for the first time. And I think there's this area where people hear about potentially privacy-invasive online tracking capabilities. And I think their minds immediately go to things like, Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. They go to like the big red flashing signs. And I want to be clear and try and kind of bifurcate these things here. These aren't the same, right? The, the, the problem in Facebook and Cambridge Analytica is not necessarily the problem we're talking about here, which is something that runs, you know, this opaque system that is sort of the undercurrent for, I think, most of the internet today. I, again, so I just want to be kind of precise here and be like, are these the same problem? Is one feeding the other? What, what's kind of going on here? Yeah, I mean, these are quite different things. I mean, most some of the biggest online platforms, most of their revenue comes from advertising. And, you know, it's not, it's not always necessarily malicious. It's not always something lurking under the, you know, under the bed. It's not always out to get you. There's a lot of people and websites and things in the online advertising space that, that are very malign. There's a lot of people out there that do good and smart and clever things. There's a lot of things in on online advertising that can be very helpful to you in, in many situations. It's not always immediately, you know, an ad has popped up or, or something tracked you. You must immediately set fire to your, your desktop and destroy the hard drive and, you know, start all <laughs> over again with a completely clean slate. It isn't always a bad thing necessarily. So what brings us here today? on today's episode is actually this report, right? We were talking about charity organizations. We're talking about online ad tracking. And a report came out, I believe, last month from a group called Pro Privacy. And it looked at the online ad tracking methods, the, the engagement models by a lot of charity organizations in the United Kingdom. So top level here, can you brief us on what that report found and also explain why it's broad strokes? Some of the headlines I was even seeing before you wrote about it why those broad strokes might not be as scary as first assumed. Yeah, I mean, they, they essentially did a, a very big deep dive, and it's a very, very long and detailed report, I've got to say. They looked at all of the major charities, many of the, the not-so-major charities in the UK, operating in the UK, because they wanted to get a feel for what kind of ad tracking networks were, were on these websites, what kind of tracking was going on under the hood, what kind of picture was being built up of the site visitors? Because obviously a, a lot of charity organizations out there deal with very, very sensitive topics. Everything from um, people that have got potentially fatal illnesses, disease, things that are dealing with things like domestic abuse uh, in the home. Really, really you know, heavy-duty, serious topics but these organizations desperately need funding in a lot of cases. They, they, they operate completely in a lot of cases off, off, off the goodwill of the, the, the general public. So you have this weird situation where you've got incredibly people visiting websites that are, deal with incredibly sensitive topics, 
we're all being funded not only via advertising but but via people's personal data if you like whether anonymized in theory or not to keep the lights on on these these services that are very very essential services but potentially at what cost to the the person on the website how much of their individuality is is you know revealed in the process of funding these organizations it is sort of important here to to dig into the results and i saw that the report authors right they looked at they looked at all these uk charity organizations and i know that you did a bit of work here where you were kind of culling from the list some are simply not active anymore or some are using websites i think that are just domains that are kind of no longer being maintained and at the end there there's this there's this sort of statistics that i saw that said 42% of the remaining 27,000 sites, which is still a lot, they use, quote-unquote, ad tracking. Digging into the report, do we know what kind of ad tracking that is? And do we know if it's common in sort of daily internet use? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think it's important to, to note that the, the actual numbers involved sound very, you know, very scary. But the, the, the initial number that they actually kicked things off with was that they looked at... 80,000 UK-based charities, you know, and this is, that, that's, that's quite a big number. And those, those numbers are pulled from, those domains are pulled from something called the Charity Commissioner's Database. Now, I'm not entirely sure how charities work, how they operate, who regulates them in the US, for example, but in the UK, everything essentially goes through this thing called the Charity Commissioner. And it's very, very precise. There's lots of rules, there's lots of regulations. You can get into all sorts of horrible trouble if you're a charity trustee, essentially someone that, that helps shape the direction of the charity. So you've got to be very careful there. And 80,000 charities sounds, oh, you know, oh my God, there's, there's 80,000 sites harvesting my information, but it's not, that's not the case. Because I, I, you, you already mentioned some of these URLs don't really operate anymore. So they, if you strip out publishing companies, subdomains, URLs that don't work anymore, you're left with 64,000 from the 80K. And so when they say 42% of what remain, you know, 42% sounds big, but it's still, you know, 27,000 sites. And this number, as you go through this report, keeps shrinking and shrinking. So from that 27,000, most of the trackers, again, they do this thing where they, they flip between percentages and then you have to go digging a little bit for the actual number, which never quite sounds quite as bad. 33, I think, 34% roughly of the sites simply used trackers belonging to things like Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and Instagram. Mm. And, you know, most, most people have trackers like that, thumbs up buttons on, like that on their website, their personal websites, or they see them on social networks all the time. And I don't really think people are that bothered about social plugins. People generally know what the deal is with those. They can go digging for information on those if they're really concerned. But by and large, the majority of the stuff on these websites was, was sort of cookie-cutter trackers and thumbs-up buttons that they probably wouldn't care about. DoubleClick, which is the Alphabet-owned advertising platform, was on something like 15% of the sites, which is, you know, we've, we've now gone from 80,000 to 10,000. So that's 15% of all of these sites is roughly 10,000 sites we're using DoubleClick. Now, again, DoubleClick is, is pretty well known. If you really want to get information on what DoubleClick is, what it does, you can go and search for it. You almost certainly run into DoubleClick ads 
on a daily basis, you know, and outside of the Google ecosystem, something like 330 sites used real-time buying trackers and 220 had a data broker tracker installed. So going back to those websites Mm -hmm. that sit above those layer of individually siloed websites and gobble down everything and, and piece these big pictures together of website visitors, you're talking 220 sites. And then from there, the study says 90% of the the top 100 popular charities in the UK use methods like DoubleClick or similar. But, you know, again, 90%. Oh, you know, my goodness, that's that's huge. 90% of the top 100 popular charities is essentially 90 websites, (laughs) unless I've completely forgotten how to do numbers, and that's quite possible. so, you know, you've gone from 80,000 websites yeah. to, you know, essentially you drill down to the top 100 charities. And from there, with double click taking out the picture, from what I can recall, something like 40% of that used third party elements belonging to either real time buying players or data brokers. That's where we've drilled down from in terms of numbers. So it's, it sounds horrendous, and it's still not brilliant if lots of websites are using all sorts of tracking tools without proper notification. But what we're really looking at is real-time buying, real-time bidding. Before we get into real-time bidding, because the numbers have, you know, like you said, dramatically decreased, you know, we start with this 80,000, and now we're looking at 90 sites. I think there is an importance, there's, there's something important here to talk about why, why this matters. You know, and from my understanding, for what you looked at, it's that there isn't just a potential for, okay, ad tracking, but there's actually sort of this intersection of potentially fraud, if I'm getting that correct. And so I wanted to ask that, yeah, what, what is this intersection and why does this matter? Why does this matter in a, in a grand scope? Well, I mean, the, the majority of the, the major charity organizations in the UK, you know, they're very big players and everything hinges upon their, their reputation. You know, are they, are they cleaner than clean? Do they do everything correctly? And, you know, if, if they were found to walk into something really dubious, it could have a lasting impact on the charity. The trustees who are essentially a sort of, not exactly a CEO, but, you know, they, they're essentially the board of the organization, if you like. They can get into all sorts of trouble. They can get a criminal record if something really bad happens with their charity. Now, as it happens, it's really bad in the UK if your charity becomes involved in things like money laundering or various forms of fraud, because there are lots and lots of laws and rules against this. So if your charity was involved in money laundering in the UK. There is an offence. There's the Terrorism Act uh, 2000. There's the Anti-Terrorist Crime and Security Act 2001, Counter-Terrorism Act 2008, the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002, and lots and lots of other really scary-sounding acts that you don't want to get involved in. And now, lots of things these days have donations outside the usual channels. You know, you can send people Venmo, you can PayPal things, you can send cash to people very easily over the internet. Mm-hmm. Lots of people have GoFundMes that you can donate to anonymously. You don't really know where that money is coming from in a, in a, in a lot of cases. And it's the easier you make it to donate, the better it is for the charity. But the more careful they've got to be about tracking where the money comes from. Now, we know that ad networks have had fraud problems Forever, you know, there's always been a problem with ad networks in the old, the olden days. 
you had uh, the old style of ad networks where you would very slowly place a bid, ads are purchased in bulk and, and put down on specific websites. Things didn't rotate. There weren't easy ways to, to spin these ads out to different sites or track things. And it was rife with fraud. You know, now that, <laughs> that, that old system's been replaced by real-time bidding, which is very agile. It's a bit cheaper. You assign whatever budget you like to those ads, and you, you basically win the bid you're interested in. And it's all done in nanoseconds. You know, it's like a big advertising sandwich with the, mm-hmm. the advertisers with their products on the left. You've got the website on the right. And the ad network has dropped in the middle with the, just this nonstop flurry of, mm. of bids and purchases and ads dropped on websites. But you still see fraud. It's very, very difficult to, to, to stop fraud. Bogus ads, ransomware, malware, exploit yeah. redirects. And some of that money is going to be tied up in money laundering, essentially. Mm. Uh, that's always going to be the case. So now you think, well, okay. You've got charities, you've got these ad networks, you've got these trackers, you've got things popping up potentially to keep these sites afloat. But then some of these ads might be bogus, some of them might be involved in money laundering. And then you cast your mind back to the, the Terrorism Act, the Anti-Terror Crime Act, the Counter-Terror, and you think, well, my goodness, you know, what if one of these charities ended up with some ads on the site or some tracking on the site? The, the tie back in some way to, to some laundering or some terrorism or something else equally bad. And this is, this is a really bad situation for these charities to be in because if they get into trouble in this way, it could ruin their reputation. People could go to jail. And it's incredibly difficult to track these things, to keep an eye on these things, to successfully wave these things away from your charity. I wanted to go back to real-time bidding which is something you were talking about here. Like you said, on uh, the way to think of it maybe is like, a, is like a sandwich. And on the left, you have companies that want to place ads somewhere. And on the right, you have the websites where those ads go. And in the middle is just this machinery, this machinery that says, okay, I'll take your bid and I'll do it, like you said, in nanoseconds and we'll place those ads on this website and it might rotate. And it's also targeting at the same time what we were talking about earlier is, is profiles, is people. And so I wanted to dig into, while we know, you know the dangers of malvertising, a fraud that come about through real-time bidding for charity organizations, what should people know? What should folks know? Should, you know? There's this machinery in the middle. Is it targeting me? Does it know a lot about me? How much does it know about me? How much can be traded over? Just trying to really understand real-time bidding and, and the consumer here. Yeah, I mean, again, I think it's good to to understand the scale of these things because we've gone from 80,000 websites to 40,000, I think, to 20,000 to 100. When you get right down to the the nitty-gritty of this, I would say the the real-time bidding angle is the most concerning one because people simply are not going to have a clue that their information has gone to this, you know, this this completely random organization. I may as well be off in the cloud somewhere, out in the wide blue yonder, grabbing (laughs) all of this data and doing who knows what with it. According to the, the research paper, from all those numbers, it was just 21 charities sharing this data with brokers directly and seven sharing with more than one broker. It's really important for the person in front of their screen, whether they're in front of one of the 80,000, the 40,000 or the 21, to know what they're going to do with their information and how they can control it. Now, 
these bidding networks are, are, you know, light years ahead of what used to be done years ago in terms of how they advertise, how they collect their data, what they do with it. But we're really sort of still back in the Stone Age where where our computers are concerned because everything relies on the endless ream of pop-ups and do you want to accept this? Do you not want to accept this? And, you know, much like when you install an app on a mobile phone, and your your Android, for example, will tell you all of the permissions that the 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 app wants to to, to take. And you sit there and you read these things, and you you probably understand maybe two of them, six of them make no <laughs> sense, three of them you go googling for and have a worse understanding than before you started googling it, and then you just install <laughs> the thing anyway. And it's the same for cookie pop-ups and notifications and tracker pop-ups. So yeah. when you land on one of these websites you're supposed to get one of those, do you accept notices? Do you accept tracking? And you read this and everything under the hood is supposed to pause and and wait for you to make an informed decision. And until you say yes or no, the website doesn't do anything. But the the research found that 92% of the top charity websites at this point, I have no idea what number of <laughs> sites right, we're right. talking about. It might be 92% of the 21 that we're using. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. So, yeah, we'll, we'll just go with the 92% and accept <laughs> that it might be significantly smaller. 92% of those websites failed to pause the cookies loading until a decision was made. So eight charities paused three third-party cookie loading, and the rest were potentially sharing this data, your data, with the advertisers until you decided what to do next. Now, now obviously, if they're sharing it before you've said, no, please don't share it, this is very, very much in the realm of multiple horses, stable doors everywhere. And 30% of the top tier gave no consent option either way, which is wow. really very bad. And, you know, I've, I've visited some of these charity websites because I, I made a whole bunch of donations to a charity relevant to myself not so long ago. They, they stuck a letter through my door and there was, a, there was a bunch of codes and things on it. I was curious to see if there was any personalization, if they mm-hmm. tried to tag me to the things that I'd done with regard to their organization to some sort of online profile. And I, I went online, I opened up the website after following the link from their letter and frankly, I'm none the wiser. I, I, got, I got this massive pop-up the length of my page. It told me that analytical and marketing cookies are set to off by default, which is nice, but essential mm-hmm. cookies were ticked. And then when you start to dig into all the sliders and things, you start to ask questions. You know, I, I honestly, genuinely had no idea what the correct answers were supposed to be. If I stick this slider to the left, will that be the thing that I want to happen? Will it not be the thing? You really just don't know. And I, I work in this industry, so you know, he, heaven, heaven help someone that, that, that just wants to know what they're going to do with their data because they're not going to know. Yeah, you raised such a good point there. We have been receiving here in California. It seems to me there are more websites that are saying, you have an option here for how these cookies will be activated, how they'll be enabled. And I've seen the exact same sliders. I've seen the exact, like the the differentiation between, okay, these are straight up, these are ad tracking. And we're going to let you know, and we're going to let you select, okay, do you want these turned on or off? And then there's that kind of vague term essential. There are essential cookies. And the way I interpret it, right? And 
I also work in this field and I'm like, I'm interpreting, I'm not knowing, which is already kind of like, <laughs> uh-oh. <laughs> and the way I've interpreted it is like, well, if I don't have these turned on, maybe the site's going to break, right? I don't know if that's true. And I should know that because, again, I think we all should know that. We all should have some clarity on that because it's a really easy way to get away with like, oh, yeah, don't worry. These are these are essential, you know, like you're going to be fine with these. And it's extremely difficult to do this for every single website that I'm on. Like it's a real pain. It is not easy. It is not intuitive. The difference between the experience on a like laptop browser and also on your mobile phone, they are different sometimes. Like the, the screens that you are shown, the ease of actually selecting an option, they are different. I have noticed that. And what you were going back to here, what you were talking about, about you know, 92% of this tiny number failed to pause the cookie tracking even if a person had not selected an option Despite the fact that it's a small number, I think taking a sort of hypothetical example here really kind of paints the picture. If I am going to a website about suicide prevention and I am looking for a suicide prevention number and that website says, okay, we have cookies and they can track you. How do you want to engage with this? And I just don't, right? I have no idea what this stuff means and I just don't engage with it, but I'm still browsing the website. I'm still engaging with it. I may be like looking at a, at a phone number. I'm hovering over it. I, of course, do not want any of that information to be used in a way that could, heaven forbid, lead to advertisements. I'm like, what do you mean you're advertising to me because I visited a suicide prevention website? I'm like, what kind of product would even do that? What kind of grim world do we live in where we're like, this is a target demographic for us as a company. And so like, it, it sort of just, you know, even though there's small numbers here, I think these kind of hypotheticals here, like if this is happening out there, I think it contextualizes like, yeah, this is concerning. This is worrying. I do wish that we had better clarity on how to engage with cookies because um, like you said, the options are just not very clear to users, unfortunately. I don't know if you found any that are clear. I don't know if you found any that you're like, yeah, this is actually helping. I don't know what your conversations are like with people. Do people even engage in these or is it just us two? <laughs> I, I think it's just us two, lonely in the void and observing hellscape dystopia 2020 from afar. It is very concerning and, and it is a small number from the overall pilot we're left with. But again, remember that these are some of the biggest, most popular charity organizations in the UK. So it might be a small number of sites, but it's probably a huge number of, of web traffic. And you're talking about like the suicide prevention helpline type websites. For all we know, you could go to one of these sites and they, they track things down to the fact that you might hover your mouse over a, a specific phone number. Maybe they've got regional phone numbers for different regions. So they've got a very easy way mm -hmm. to figure out which specific region you're in, if you hover over phone number three rather than six, maybe. There's so many ways they can track this stuff. And, and what we forget, you know, everything is so easy now. It's, it's the easiest thing in the world to open 20 websites in your browser in the space of 10 minutes and think nothing of it. But every single time you open a single website, there's, there's hundreds or thousands of things happening under the, under the hood, from, not just from the, for the website itself, all the things it plugs into, all the, you know, the, the, the way that the, the server serves up the web page in the first place. Every, mm -hmm. Everything has just these, these I, I don't know if you've ever seen this diagram of what happens when a website 
loads up. Uh, so, you know, the, the, on the left, there's just this picture of the website opening and you've got this, this happy, smiley person next to it. <laughs> on the right, they've got this picture of this incredibly confused and concerned looking individual where they sort of layer all the different aspects of what actually happens from start to finish when you, when you, you type in a website into your, into your URL bar and you hit, hit the, the return key. Everything from the, the, the server side call to, to how this thing is presented to you to where all the different bits and pieces of the puzzle line up and are, and are given to you. You know, it's an incredibly complicated procedure. And it's, it's quite similar for a lot of the advertising components of a website in how they're called, how they serve up where they come from, where the cookies come from, how those cookies sit in your, in your browser somewhere and do the things they do. And, you know, even if you go to a website and tell it, no, I never want any of this, I don't want any of this, leave me alone, I'm not interested. Most of those websites to do that will, will often have to set a cookie on your, in your computer forever simply to say, I'm not interested, leave me alone forever. It's just you can't, you can't really escape it. It's so bizarre. Right. And I think it's important to remind our audience here because it feels like we're going down the path of like, you know, if we kept talking for like another 20 minutes, we might get to the conclusion of don't use the internet. (laughs) (laughs) And I don't think that's actually what we try to do here. And so I think for people who are worried about this, you know, obviously there's the I think less useful advice of manage your cookies because it happens on again, like we said almost every single website. How benefited are we from every single website you visit? You have to manage your own privacy settings. It's, it's not actually that helpful. But another tool that folks can use is, of course, there are several browser extensions out there that block invasive ad tracking. Uh, there are many. Malwarebytes has one. We have BrowserGuard, right? But there are many that folks can choose from. So it's just sort of like a, rather than ending on a, hey, you know, Deplug and go live in the woods and never use the internet again. There are ways to control for this. And oh, I think that's absolutely. a, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it is entirely possible to reclaim your data and, and, you know, importantly, see what they are doing with it. So, you know, in the, in the EU, in the US and elsewhere, there are ways that you can request from companies. It doesn't matter whether it's the, the small siloed off website or the big, you know, the big ad network, data trackers, data brokers, whoever. You can put a request in. You, you can see everything they've got on you. And it's interesting. I know people who've done this. I've seen people talk about the fact that they've done this. And quite often, it's often not as bad as you would think. There's often a lot of things in these profiles that are completely completely inaccurate. There's things in there that are wrong. They'll end up bleeding some data together if, if there's people in a shared household and a, you know maybe some, some people are sharing the same laptop or the same desktop. Even where they're using separate computers, often people will search for similar things and these profiles just get smashed together. And all of a sudden, the thing that you were worrying about, you know, oh my goodness, I'm being tracked. They know everything about me. It would be all over the place. It would be completely wrong there are again, in addition to plugins like our own or, or extensions like our own, there are tools out there where you can plug them into the browser, and it will show you, you know, the the correct connections made between these third-party websites. So you go to website A, it it will show you what plugins, what what browser trackers have been placed on your machine by that website, and then when you go to another website, it will tell you, it will show you physically. Hey, hang on! This 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 is using the same technology as that website you've been to. 
here's how they're connected, here's what they're tracking between the two sites. And again, things like that allow you to make an informed decision, allow you to contact these companies and say, hey, what have you got on me? You know, In many cases, you'd be able to ask them to, to remove some, if not all, of this data, depending on which region you live in. By and large, I mean, I've worked with people in the ad networks industry. I've worked in security firms with people who'd, who'd actually emigrated over from major, major ad platforms into the security space. And the majority of those people that I talked to, that I spoke to, a lot of those networks were completely on the level. A lot of the time it's trying to weasel out the bad actors who are ruining it for everyone else. So by all means, it's definitely not, you know, immediately the kiss of death <laughs> that, there's, that, that we have these profiles out there that exist. And in a, again, in a lot of cases, they are actually genuinely useful for a lot of your day-to-day web experiences. Yeah. Chris, thank you for being on today's show. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. To our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in two weeks when we speak with Doug Levin, founder and president of EdTech Strategies, about the many cybersecurity challenges that schools faced in shifting to distance learning this year.